but all of us understand that context is um, just vitally important to understanding um, what what is being said, whether it's in the Bible or outside of the Bible. And as far as like how to do it, in a sense, it, there's really not anything to teach because it really is just common sense. Um, but it will be very helpful, I think, to go through some examples, uh, just to look at some examples of things that um, you either could take out of context or that people historically have taken out of context and misinterpreted the text, just to get some ideas of like the ways that context um, affects things. And then we're going to have an exercise uh, that hopefully I can give you uh, quite a bit more time this week to work on. Um, and uh, you get a, get a little practice at taking context into account. So, a simple example of taking something out of context. Uh, Psalm 14.1 says, there is no God. I mean, that's a pretty startling statement, isn't it? The Bible tells us that there is no God. Um, but of course, if you look at it in context, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So it's it's basically it's telling us you know what the thought of the fool is there is no God so I mean that's a pretty simple one nobody would actually make that mistake I don't think um, so um, easy enough to see context is important there um, probably the most famous example about a context is certainly the one that like when people talk about oh you gotta you make, gotta make sure you read in context. The, the passage that I hear cited most often as something that is taken out of context is Philippians 4.13. Uh, many of you may be familiar with this. It's, it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Some translations have, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But the context tells you it is Christ that's being referred to there. Um, and one of the reasons why this comes up, why it's so popular, is particularly because like a lot of a lot of athletes, um, you know, they get interviewed by somebody and they will cite this verse, you know, because, you know, they're like, oh, wow, you're, you're doing amazing things. You know, you have great athletic ability and people will cite this verse. And I, I don't want to be misunderstood here. So, again, take me in context. Um, I think that usually these athletes have the right motive. Um, they are seeking to give glory to God rather than themselves. And so people say, "Wow, you're really great!" And this, you know, and they're trying to give glory to God, um, but they kind of make it sound like, um, "Well, I can do literally anything." You know, it's like basically, you know, God gives me omnipotence. Um, I don't think that's actually what they're saying, but it's like, "Can I do?" I mean, it's like I'm not in that good of physical shape. I cannot do. <laughs> what a lot of these athletes do. There's just no way, I, you know, and I just don't have any reason to, like, quote this as a promise and go out there and run a marathon. You know, I would, I would die. So, um, <clears throat> but if you look at the context, you will see that, like, Paul is not saying, well, I can, I can do anything, you know, through Christ who strengthens me. Um, that's not his intent. So if you, if you look at it, Philippians 4, starting in verse 10, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Uh, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Uh, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. Uh, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret 
of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So now that we've seen the context, what what is Paul saying there? Well, if I can face whatever situation God has put in front of me, because or through Christ who strengthens me, mm-hmm. it's not that I've got the power to do whatever I want. It's I can face the situation God has put in front of me. Right. Yeah. So whether whether Paul is in prosperous circumstances where he's getting plenty of food and uh, you know warm clothing and all that, he can he can handle that. Or if he's in really bad shape, he can still handle that. You know, Christ is going to strengthen him to survive through whatever circumstances he goes through. And so to take this verse out of context and apply it to, you know, I can accomplish basically anything, um, is is to is to take it out of context. So that's um, again just probably the most famous example. Um, another one um, that comes up some. Um, have any of you seen the uh, the Ms. Pond necklaces? Um, I, don't, I haven't seen one in a while, but they used to be kind of popular. Anybody familiar with those? No, lots of wow, lots of shaking of heads. You've probably, you probably you you haven't seen the Ms. Pond necklaces? Wow. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Uh, they're 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 a necklace that it's actually two necklaces, um, and so it's like a it's like a round medallion type thing, and it's it's got kind of a jagged break, and so if you put them together, they make a, you know one round piece, but it actually is two pieces, either each on a separate chain, um, and they quote Genesis 31:49, and the idea is that uh, is that people who love each other but um, have to be separated for a time for whatever reason. They each take a piece of this necklace. And Genesis 31:49 says, and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. Um, and so it's presented as kind of like, oh, well, what, you know, we love each other, we're gonna be apart, but God's gonna be watching over us as we're separated from each other. That's that's the context. It's, I don't know, this, this illustration kind of lacks some of its punch if you guys haven't seen these necklaces, but um, but once upon a time, yes? I actually have seen some. I think it was in some movie okay. where there's like this necklace uh-huh. and then there's like two hearts mm-hmm. to be like put them together. Okay, yeah. The ones I've seen haven't been hearts. They've just been like a round piece, but it's, you know, it's just got a jagged break. And so, you know, when you're together, you can set, you know, put the two parts together. And actually the writing usually goes across the break. So you can't actually read the whole thing unless you put them together. But, um, but anyway, but I mean, I, I've certainly uh, seen a lot of those. So, um, but the thing is, is like if you look at the context, it really is not a good use of it. Um, so in Genesis 31, um, you know, it take too long to, to try to read the whole thing, but in Genesis 31, we have a situation where uh, Jacob um, has been living with Laban, um, and he's married Laban's daughters, and he's tended Laban's flocks, and Jacob has had a history of you know, basically trying to prosper by deceiving people. He deceived his brother Esau uh, a couple times, and, and you know, deceived his father. Um, and he, you know, he goes and he lives with Laban. And Laban is—he's a, a deceptive guy too. And he's like trying to work it, you know, where he can get the most out of Jacob that he can. You know, that's, that's why Jacob wound up marrying both of Laban's daughters, is because Laban tricked him into marrying the one that he didn't want to marry, just so he could get seven more years of labor out of him. And so you have all this this bad situation 
And finally, you know, uh, Jacob is, he's, he leaves. He's like, okay, I'm going to take my, my family, I'm going to take my property, I'm going to go back home to my family. Uh, and Laban chases him down. Um, and But then God appears to Laban in a dream and says, basically, don't mess with Jacob. But, you know, they go and they have a conversation, and Laban's like, you've taken stuff of mine. And Jacob's like, hey, search everything. See if there's anything, you know, here um, that's that's uh, that's yours. Um, now I'll just read verses 36 and 37 for a little bit of context here. It says, then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Uh, for you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us. So he let Laban like look through the stuff and you know couldn't come up with anything. Of course, Laban takes a little different perspective. Uh, in verse 43, uh, it says Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All that you see is mine. So, you know, Laban's looking at it from the perspective of like, well, this is all stuff you got from me, you know, that I didn't really want to give up. And he says, but, but what can I do this day for these, my daughters, or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And uh, they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Shadutha, uh, but Jacob called it Galib. Laban said, uh, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God as witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. So when we see the whole context, what's going on here when it said, the Lord watch over between you and me? What can you do? What's the what's the thought here? Yeah. It, it seems to be more of the idea that uh, God will keep you accountable mm-hmm. to your promise in this situation. Right. It's like it's basically like they, these people they just don't trust each other, <laughs> and it's like I, you know we're calling God to witness. It's like here here's our little boundary line. You stay on your side, I'll stay on my side, and God's gonna watch out and make sure that you know you don't do anything bad to me. That's the that's the idea. Um, and so to like take this and turn it into something, you know, to indicate it's like, oh, well, we love each other, and you know, and God's watching over us while we're apart. It's just this is really to just take things out of context. So that's a. Uh, it would probably be more entertaining if you guys had seen those, but I'm, I'm just I'm just amazed that uh, I'm the only one that's seen them. So. Um, so uh, that's that's just some some like some fairly clear examples of context mattering. Um, there's also the the idea of proof texting, um, and that's a that's a phrase that that comes up 
And it's, I think it's kind of an unfortunate phrase because it can have more than one meaning. And one meaning is very negative and one meaning is very positive. The, the fact is that the Bible gives us all sorts of information about things that are true. And so we can find a text that proves that something is true. And so proof texting in that sense is, is very good and very legitimate. Uh, but sometimes people will just, they'll just cite a verse out of context um, and use it as a proof and, you know, and basically just count on there being no examination of the context to see if they're actually interpreting it correctly. Um, and so that's kind of the, the bad idea of proof texting. And we don't ever want to be guilty of proof texting in that sense. So that's one of the reasons why it is really important to, uh, to be sure that you, um, that you are looking at the context when you're studying scripture. Um, probably my favorite example of this, just because it's one that I've had cited against things that I believe from various sources, um, and it's you know in a way that's inappropriate to the context, is 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 33. It says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Um, and I can't tell you the, the number of times and the wide variety of positions that have been defended using this verse. Um, I mean, one clear example is I've had Jehovah's Witnesses use this against me in relation to the Trinity. And they say, oh, well, the Trinity is confusing to us, and so it can't be true because God's not the author of confusion. Um, now, they don't say it exactly that way, but that's what they're basically getting at. And there's been, I mean, it's just, I, I consider this like, in a sense, to be the universal proof text. It's basically, you can, if you say something is confusing to you, well, it can't be from God because God's not the author of confusion. So you can basically disprove any doctrine with this. Um, but the question is, is that actually what is being said here? Is that if something's confusing to me, then it can't be from God? I don't think so. So let's look at the context. Let's start back in verse 26. Um, Paul says, what then, brothers? Uh, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each uh, one of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So now that we've seen the context, what do you think is being said when Paul says God is not a God of confusion, but of peace? He's saying that it is worthy and that there's not... I'm sorry. He says that it's worshipped orderly and there's not discordant... Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. It's about orderly worship. Um, God is not the author of disorderly worship, is basically the idea there. Um, worship should be orderly. That's the, that's the point that Paul is making. Um, if you have just a whole crowd of people and several of them are, are jumping up and speaking in tongues and several of them are, are prophesying and everybody's speaking over each other, 
that's that's not of God. That's not the Holy Spirit moving. And you know, people say, oh well, it's you know, I I just can't control it. The Spirit's just moving me to speak. It's like Paul says, the Spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You have control over this. You don't just have to speak over each other. Um, and so that's the point of this verse. And so to to pull it out and say, oh well, this particular doctrine is confusing to me. Therefore, it can't be from God. It's just to completely miss the point of the passage. So is that, is that clear? Um, so um, that's a that's just a, a nice example of where somebody can proof text. They can just pull a verse, and it sounds convincing. Oh well, God's not the author of confusion. This is confusing. I guess it's not from God. If you look at the context. That's not what it's saying. The fact is, is God is you know so far above us that some doctrines about God actually are confusing. They're they're just really hard for us to grasp, and the Bible says that. So, um, so yeah, we don't want to take this passage or any other passage out of context. Um, another um, kind of aspect of this is that the meaning of words uh, is defined by context. Um, we find this in the English language. We have several words that it's like it's basically the same word, at least it sounds the same. Sometimes it's spelled the same, but it has a different meaning depending on how it's used. Um, and that's also true um, in the Bible. Um, one, one place where this comes up, um, often in discussions about um, salvation and God's view of mankind and salvation is with with respect to the word world, uh, cosmos in the Greek. Um, people will often cite uh, John 3.16 and 17. Usually just John 3.16, but sometimes you throw in verse 17 as well. Um, both of them use the word. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God not did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, a lot of times people will make a statement that, oh, well, the word world, it just, it just has one meaning. You know, you, you, can't make it, you can't make it mean anything else. Um, it's just got this one meaning, and we just have to blanket apply that to every place that it's used. And usually they're looking at, like, a passage like this, and they say, oh, well, that means every individual who's ever lived in all of creation is kind of the, the interpretation. Um, but if you actually like look at the uses of the word world, you'll see that that can't possibly be um, the only way to understand the word world. It's used different ways in different places, and you can see that from the context. Um, so one of my favorite examples of this is 1 John 2, 15, and se- 15 through 17, where John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes uh, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So there, obviously, if you look at the context, the word world has much more of a connotation of this world system, uh, the idea of the the sinful aspects of our current age that we live in. Um, And so you really have to, just in the definition of words, you have to pay attention to the context because a word can change its definition based on the context it's used in. Is that clear? That's a 
you know, a pretty simple idea, something we're used to in English. So um, we should be we should be familiar with that in the Bible as well. So that's something you definitely have to pay attention to. Um, and I want to do this pretty quick here because I want to let you guys start an exercise. Um, one of the things that I find particularly helpful when you're looking at context um, is not just to look at the immediate context you're in, because the Bible was written in such a way that it's 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 books of the Bible. Um, like in particular, uh, if you look at the New Testament, many of the books in there are letters that were written uh, from various apostles to various churches. Um, and they are often very structured um, and will present arguments and uh, will do so in a, in a very clear pattern as it, with, a, with a particular flow of thought through the book. Um, and so one of the things that is very good is to be familiar with the general flow of thought of books of the Bible. And so if you're looking at a particular passage in a particular book, you can ask the question. It's like, okay, I'm trying to interpret this. Maybe it's a little fuzzy. Um, how does it fit into the overall flow of thought of this book? Um, and it can actually be just really helpful just to just to get an outline. Um, I mean, you can sometimes if you just have just a Bible, if you're at the beginning of the book, sometimes it'll have an outline. If you get a study Bible, it almost certainly will. Uh, you can look at commentaries; they're going to have outlines. There's all sorts of places where you can find you know, ready-made outlines of books of the Bible, and those are very helpful. Or you can work it out yourself. Um, you know, if you just read through it, you know, multiple times, you usually can get, um, I mean, depending on the, you know, on the book and, and various things, but you can you can often get a pretty clear look at what's the flow of thought of this book. And that can be very helpful in uh, properly interpreting a particular passage. Now, I have one example, um, and I have to kind of caveat it because um, this is one where I have a very strong opinion that I'm correct in my interpretation of it, but lots of really good teachers that I really respect disagree with me. Now, there are some that agree with me, too. So um, if you disagree with me, you know, it's not the end of the world. Um, but I studied it, and I like the context argument is the thing that really... Uh, clinches it for me. So I'm going to present this to you, um, but just in really abbreviated form. Uh, if we have time after the exercise, we might talk about it more, or you're welcome to talk to me about it later. Um, but it's Romans 2.13. Romans 2.13 says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, if you don't know the context, um, then... I will just readily admit this leaves itself wide open to two perfectly orthodox interpretations. So um, nobody should feel bad if they don't actually know the right answer just off the top of the head, their head, not knowing the context. But I'm just going to ask the question, how would you interpret that, that verse just without context? Any thoughts? Is everybody already looking at the context? <laughs> Hearing is not enough. You must be obeying. Mm -hmm. Right. 
uh, very much like maybe what you would find in the book of James, um, where, uh, let's see, I'm trying to, trying to think of the exact wording. Uh, the faith that works alone. Yeah. Um, faith that works is dead. Yeah. Faith that works is dead. Or, um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think what the... Um, Maybe, maybe it's not even James. I don't know. But anyway, there's there's various statements in the Bible that have that idea that, like, as a Christian, if you're living and you don't you don't have righteous works, it's like you're not really a Christian. Um, so it's it's only the people who are actually being sanctified who have been justified, right? And that's a I mean that's a perfectly legitimate Orthodox interpretation. Does anybody have any other suggestion? This might be this may going too much in the immediate context too, but okay, Acts chapter five, verses seven through twenty. Yeah, it's, it's no, never mind. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'll just present the other interpretation, and it's the one that I think is actually correct. So, I mean, I agree that like the the one that was presented there is is would be a perfectly legitimate. Um, interpretation of this verse if it was found in a different context. But I would say that the correct interpretation is actually the idea that Paul is here basically laying out the the condition of the covenant of works. He's basically saying um, if you just hear the law, just leaving aside the salvation we have in Christ and just looking at the, the, at the promise of the law, right? Do this and you will live. Um, obey me and you will have life. Um, disobey me and there's condemnation. Looking at it from that perspective, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. If you just hear the law, but then you disobey it, that's, that doesn't that doesn't save you. That doesn't that doesn't make you righteous before God. Um, but it's the doers of the law who are justified. So, I mean, the covenant of works. If you actually were able to perfectly obey God's law, not just outwardly, but inwardly in your heart for your entire life without fail, you would be justified. God would declare you righteous because you obey perfectly. Um, now, obviously, none of us do that. Um, if you look at the context, um, if you look particularly like at the outline of the book of Romans, um, my contention at least is that when you look at the book of Romans, um, chapter one, um, a lot of it is introduction up to verse 16 and 17. Verse 16 and 17 presents the idea of the gospel. Then he immediately in verse 18 goes into a section that I would categorize as the condemnation of the Gentiles. Um, it is speaking of those who have not known the word of God, who have gone off and worshipped all sorts of false gods, created all sorts of idols, and just gone their own way, and that they are condemned because they have just abandoned God and gone and done their own thing. And then, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul turns it over and says, now the Jews, you're in the same boat. You are also condemned um, because even though you have the law, you don't obey the law. You violate the law all the time. And he spends the entirety of his time in chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 20, bringing condemnation upon the Jews. 
and basically arguing that like all of the things that they have, the fact that they hear the law, it doesn't matter. They don't do it. The fact that they're circumcised, their hearts aren't circumcised. Uh, you know, there's all these things where it's like they think gives them a position of of right standing before God. It doesn't if you're looking at it from the perspective of the covenant of works. Because the covenant of works is, is pretty simple. Okay. Obey God. That's the only way you're going to gain life through the covenant of works. Um, and it's only when you get to 321 where Paul presents covenant of grace. Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by your own obedience to the law of God, but through what Christ did. Now, my position is, is if you look at um, chapter 2, verse 13, and interpret it as saying that, well, if you actually are a justified, regenerated Christian, you're going to be uh, being sanctified. You're going to be doing good works. It's just completely out of place in this context. Paul is trying to make it absolutely clear that the Jewish people cannot be saved through obedience to the law. Because it's not the hearers of the law who are justified before God. But it's the doers of the law. Those are the ones who are going to be justified before God. So if you're not doing it, you can't make it. That's the... that's. I hope that's clear. It's, it's basically that, that Paul is laying out the conditions of the covenant of works, and he's not at all talking about the sanctifi- sanctification of the Christian. I mean, if you just jump forward to chapter 6, then Paul says, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And he, he addresses that question of the sanctification of the believer in chapter 6. Yes? So basically what you're saying is, if this verse was in chapter 6, what shall we say then, shall we continue in sin that grace may down? It's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law that are justified. It would make perfect sense in that context mm-hmm. to interpret yep. it the first way. Yeah, yeah. so we have a, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a great way of saying it, because what we have here is we have a, a verse that, in my opinion, you could interpret two ways that are perfectly consistent with uh, the biblical teaching of salvation. But... I, you know, I really would just interpret this verse very differently depending on where it's setting in the text. If I found this in chapter 6, I would say, oh, well, that's that's talking about the fact that you have to be being sanctified or you're not really a believer. The fact that it's found in chapter 2, like, no, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about um, basically the condition of the covenant works. So now, again, lots of great Bible teachers who would disagree with me. Um, I disagree with them, you know. Uh, and I, I do think I'm right, but you know I'm, I'm only human, so I could be misinterpreting things. So, but I think that's a place where context is just absolutely vital to understanding what the text is. Um, and so you just really need to be attuned to that as you're studying scripture and be asking yourself questions like, okay, why is this statement made in this particular place? Uh, particularly when you know you're looking at a book where there's a very clear flow of thought, and just ask the question: Does this fit with the flow of thought if I interpret it this way, or does it not? 
And then you got to ask yourself the question. It's like, well, am I just misinterpreting this one verse, and do I need to find a, an interpretation that actually sounds plausible and fits the flow of thought, or am I not understanding the flow of thought right? Um, and so those are those are like cues that should alert you that you need to dig in and, and delve in deeper. Ben? Sorry, with that, I was just thinking, like, there are times, and, and, and it is, and it, it can't be clear if you, if you look closely, where they will break off the full of thought. So mm-hmm. like Ephesians 3 is, is what I think of, mm-hmm. where, I think that's the spot, where Paul's, he's already started talking about something, he's like, wait a second, let me talk about this mm-hmm. first. Yeah. And then he comes back to his flow of thought later. Right. Yes, absolutely. But but again, there are there are clues in the text that make it clear that like one thought is started and then like it's like, oh wait, I should address this first. So um, yeah, but I mean you just you again there's there's no like magic formula to figuring this stuff out. You just have to just keep working at it and try to come up with an understanding that actually seems to make it all flow together and fit. Um, but again, it's, this is something we do in everyday life with just like everyday conversations. So it's not like a foreign exercise, um, but you know, you, you, you've just got to delve in and do it. So I don't know if there's any any easy solution other than just practice at it. And so now I'm going to give you an opportunity to practice. So um, it looks like we have 20 minutes left in the class. So I was, again, I was hoping to give you more time, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll give you about 15 minutes. Uh, but just to set it up slightly, um, this is, uh, let's see. So 1 Peter, sorry, 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Um, Some translations have private interpretation. Um, This is one of the favorite verses of the Roman Catholics. Um, And and we've we've already discussed kind of the idea of private interpretation and the idea that the Roman Catholic Church will tell you, well, you don't have the right to interpret Scripture yourself. You basically just have to. Um, rely on the church's interpretation. And so this is a text that they are going to present and say, oh, well, see, the Bible itself says that we're not to use our own interpretation, that that's that's not what we should be doing. Um, And so we all know that that's not the correct interpretation. So what I want to know is, like, can you look at the context and give me reasons why that's not the proper interpretation of 2 Peter 1.20. And I've included verses 16 through 21 um, as, in a sense, like if I put all of uh, 2 Peter on there, it would just been, you know, too much. Um, you're, I would say, like, focus on this, but feel free to go anywhere in 2 Peter as you're doing this exercise and uh, you know, and just try to come up with as, as many points, as, as coherent of an argument as you can of why contextually the Roman Catholic interpretation of this passage is wrong.
then the apostles, they, when they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that Jesus Christ, that Christ is Jesus, okay? So, you hear that? They brought them back in and they didn't kill them like they some people were calling them to do. But they beat them. And how did the apostles respond when they were beaten? They, they rejoiced, right? They rejoiced. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy. In other words, there was enough in their life for the other people to see that they believed in Jesus. And they were able to suffer like Jesus did. And it was an honor to them to know that they were preaching the gospel, not to be punished. Okay? So, they never stopped. They never stopped preaching, even though they had been beaten, even though they had been in prison. So now we're going to Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, which is a little section of the Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. You remember when we read last time where they shared everything in common, right? Christopher, please step in your seat. Thank you. Um, they shared everything in common, and um, and so they gathered things. They were caring for the poor. They were caring for the widows. Okay? And so this section of the Jewish people, the Hellenists were saying, wait a minute. The Hebrews um, are, are getting, their widows are getting more, or they're being cared for, not as long. Okay? And so the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples, more than 12 of them, and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Because you hear they're proclaiming, right, in the temple every day. And they're going from house to house, they're teaching about Jesus. And they're excited about what they know about him. And they want others to know Jesus as well. Alright? But taking care of those in need takes a lot of time and effort. And if they had to stop and care for them, would they have the time to be able to go and preach the gospel in all these places? Okay, not as much, right? And so they recognized that God had gifted them to go and teach, but they didn't want other people, okay? So this is what the apostles said. They said, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, good reputation, okay? Full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this meeting, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they said, what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, and you heard the name of Stephen before, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay, they chose Stephen, a man who was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They chose Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Arminius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Okay? So, so the problem that arose was that the widows weren't getting their food, and that needed to happen, right? The widows needed to be taken care of. A widow is someone who has lost her husband, right? And in this culture, they needed someone to Widower. So a widow is the, is the 
And so they appointed seven spiritual men who could wait on tables who could make sure that these widows were cared for. And those were the first. much ready or do you still need some time? People are pretty much ready. Alright. So hit me. What are, what are your thoughts? First of all this verse is no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's audience interpretation. It's not talking about an interpretation of a prophecy. It's okay. talking about prophecy, prophetic word, or people could say it or, or what it says. Scripture. It's, it's saying this isn't coming from men. This is coming from God. Going through the context, he lays out very clearly 
we were with him, he sent these things to us, and then it follows it up with, and these are given to us through the Holy Spirit. It's not interpreting the prophecy, it's giving the prophecy. Right. So the so so basically you're you're saying that like contextually it's it's uh, the the thing that's basically not your own is the is the origin of the message. Yes. Not not interpreting it, trying to understand what it means. But the thing that isn't your own is is the origin of the message. That's yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Yep, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I hear what the same but yeah, same, uh, if you look at verse sixteen it says, you know, we didn't follow the common belief of eyes and then we made no good power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, then you go to verse two so no prophecy were produced by the little man. They didn't make it up. It's they're all they're just Right. Yeah. the second letter I'm writing to you, which I'm stirring up by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the and of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. Uh, verse 4 is actually goes around with that because he talks about how people are going to come. And the question that we're God saying, where's the promise? Mm-hmm. And he said, no, this is not what we've been writing about. Right. Um, and not just verse 4, but if you go to uh, 3, 17, and 18. Way of um, there, there are things that uh, oh no yeah sixteen three eighteen um, some things that will be hard to understand the ignorant or disabled will twist their own instruction as they do with other scriptures it's one of those they talks about it's talking about okay you're there people will try to twist these mm-hmm. yeah Second Peter two one through three also lays that out too you know false teachers also arose among the people just as they will be among you yeah. I think um, a key to this, I don't know, I'm not interrupting anyone. This is pre-canon as far as New Testament and right gathered together. So Peter is uh, dealing with false teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess other letters or other itinerant preachers or people coming in and teaching things contrary to what he's been teaching. And it seems if prior to verse 16, and then you have here, um, he's laying out the conditions for understanding or identifying what is coming from God. Mm-hmm. And eyewitnesses, I was there, I heard, I saw. Right. And then those are the those are some of your key indicators for identifying the truth versus um, inter- in someone's own interpretation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts? At the beginning of the chapter one, he's talking about um, starting in verse five, applying all diligence in your faith and just so all the qualities you should have and studying the word. And if you're going to lack these qualities, you're going to be blind and short-sighted. You're going to forget your purity. The former sin. Therefore, be all the more diligent. Make certain about his calling, accusing you as long as you practice these things, you will not stumble. And then he goes into, I'm going to be diligent too, and just keep reminding you of these things so that you will not stumble. 
Right? Yeah. Absolutely. And at the very beginning of the chapter, he talks about how they have been given everything they need for life and godliness. Is what she's saying there. Through the true knowledge of him who calls you by his own. Yeah. And this is, he's, again, just laying out, this is how you know what the true knowledge is. It's the prophetic word of God. And I really like your point earlier about the whole canon thing. About what? Um, I like the whole point about the whole canon. These are the, you okay. have to look for the eyewitnesses, the apostles. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is something where, you know, he's, he's even without that, he's, he's laying out these whole things of, you know, we were eyewitnesses. We heard the voice. And, but then in verse uh, 19, he's saying we have credit for more fully confirmed. And at that point, he's shifting over to a defense of the scripture. And I, it could be interpreted two different ways, honestly, where it's like, he's saying this prophetic word is being made more fully confirmed by this announcement, or he's saying, no, actually, the scripture is better than this. Right? It's the and it's like, this is, you need to pay attention to this as a tool lamp to shine in our place. Because this is where you get the whole, everything you need for life and godliness. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just life here on earth, it's life eternal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is how you get salvation. So that's why, it can be first like of all, you need to know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from the Lord. Doing the things that your mom or your dad asked you to do the first time. Uh, some of them are interpretations. It's not produced by the woman. So it's spoken by the Holy Spirit. And it's like, said, this is how you can know this is. What is salvation? Okay. And again, jumping back to the end, he also goes on in there to say just because it may be confusing doesn't mean that it is false. <laughs> and he specifically cites uh, Paul's writing that this may be difficult, this may be difficult, uh, uh, hard to understand. But as he goes through, he, he calls Paul's letters scripture. <laughs> and it, even though Paul wasn't an eyewitness to the resurrection and the crucifixion or he still is just or he still is acknowledging Paul's writings as mm-hmm. scripture. Yeah. You said this was contra you said this uh, this exercise is you know commonly used proof text by like Roman Catholics if you were saying. Um, if you look at verse sixteen, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths, but we made known to the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and they say again that the prophecies weren't been just laying out to you and already been told. It's kind of if you want to use it against, you know, again, like that, preach the gospel. It's like, you know, okay. um, they're not making up the doctrine that scripture is the only right thing. It's already there. They're not making up the doctrine of holy scripture. It's already right there. So it's not like the Catholics are saying, oh, well, um, the Assumption of Mary, yeah. you really, you know, it wasn't really a thing until the 1800s. But how it is because the Pope said Right. It's, yes, and then you're asking for scriptural support for that. Oh, well, there really yeah. isn't. Right. So one thing you can do is have the more study for the next yeah. 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 Did a good job of finding lots of contextual reasons for for coming to the the proper interpretation. So um, that's just a little exercise, and it's I mean it's something that we should always try to do. Yeah. I mean some some passages are just like 
just almost super clear on their face, and you just can't really can't really interpret them any other way than the obvious way. But but some of them is like, well, it could mean this, it could mean that, and often people will twist them, um, you know, like like has been done with this passage. And if you just look at the context, you'll see it's like, okay, well, this interpretation works great with the context. This interpretation, it just doesn't. And so that makes it clear which interpretation is correct. So anyway, hopefully that is all helpful. Um, yeah. We are over time now, so let's uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, again, it's a, as, as has been said here, it's uh, your word. Um, that is the, the way we learn of salvation. You have provided it for us. Uh, you had your apostle Peter uh, remind us that we should direct our eyes to this as we seek to live a godly life before you. And God, it's just, uh, the scriptures are so important. And Lord, they are important because they they tell us what you would have us know. And in order for us to know that, we have to interpret it correctly. So God, I just pray that we would just continue to, to think through these things, to be diligent, to seek to uh, come to an accurate interpretation of everything that we read in your word, that we might truly know you, love you as you are, and walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've called us. Great Christ's name. Amen. Do you have church? Do you have family? Do you have schoolwork?